This is God's word from Acts chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision, and a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. 
And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is God's Word. You may be seated. If you don't already have your Bibles open, let me invite you to open them to Acts chapter 9. In 1748, it was a man who made a voyage from West Africa going back to his home in England. One night there arose a storm that was so violent that it nearly took the vessel down. And during that night, the man on board, no doubt fearing for his life, found a Bible on board. And he began reading it. He spent much of that night reading that Bible and praying to the God of that Bible. That would mark the beginning of the conversion of this man. This man and the rest of the crew, they made it through that fearful night and made it back safely to England. A year later, however, this man again got on a boat to go back to Africa. Except this time he was the captain of the ship and the ship he was a captain of was a slave trading ship. And so that was this man's profession for the next five years. He was the captain of a slave trading ship. Until five years went by and he had a seizure that prevented him from sailing again. And so... After that incident, he found another profession. That man spent the rest of his life dedicated to the church. He became most famous for his hymns. And in 1772, he wrote these words, which will be familiar to all of us, and they'll be dear to all of us. He wrote, Amazing Grace... How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. 
How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Many of you will know this man's name was John Newton. And before God saved Newton, Newton lived a life in the fast lane, to put it mildly. And yet, all of a sudden, God's grace intervened in his life, and his life would never be the same. Towards the end of his life, Newton would join forces with William Wilberforce in England and uh, fight for the abolition of slavery. Newton knew the amazing grace of the gospel. And we come in our passage in Acts to a, a watershed moment. It arguably is the most famous passage in the book of Acts. If you've never read through the book of Acts, you likely have heard of this moment. The moment where Saul, on the Damascus Road, was supernaturally converted. Maybe you know Saul by his more common name, Paul. But since he's here, Saul, we'll call him Saul today. And Saul was miraculously converted. And yet, just as with that song, Amazing Grace, it... It's so familiar to us that we might be tempted to, to miss just how amazing of a moment we have in Acts chapter 9. And so my prayer for us, for you, is that you would see afresh the amazing grace of God in Jesus. And as Newton saying, how precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed pray that we would feel the preciousness of grace this morning. Let me pray and ask for God to do just that. Oh, Father, we thank you for the immense privilege it is to come and worship you in your name. Father, we confess that it is only through Jesus that we can come and gather this morning. And Father, for many of us, you have saved us. And yet, Lord, many years have passed since that first moment when we felt the preciousness of grace. Father, many of us this week have felt overwhelmed at the cares and the worries of life. And Father, I pray that you would, for these next few moments, allow us to block out those distractions, Lord, and that we would fix our mind on Your Word and that You, by Your Spirit, would teach us. Father, be with me and my weaknesses, Lord. I pray that in spite of them, You would be gracious to us this morning. And Lord, may You receive all the honor and all the glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So if you're taking notes this morning, I have two points. They'll both be longer than normal, but we'll still get out of here in a reasonable time. Two points. The first, seeing the glory of Christ forever changes your life. Seeing the glory of Christ forever changes your life. Look at verses 1 through 9. And specifically, I want to focus our minds on verses 3 through 6. Here at the beginning of chapter 9, Luke reintroduces Saul 
And the last time that we saw Saul was at the beginning of chapter 8. And there Saul was approving of the execution of Stephen and leading the charge of the persecution of Christians that then scattered people to Judea and Samaria. And the rest of chapter 8 kind of focused on Philip the evangelist and how God used that awful thing that happened to Stephen to grow and build his church. And yet we see not much has changed in the life of Saul. Saul's still on his mission to persecute and imprison Christians. Except now he's actually secured the legal documentation that he would needed, have needed to extradite Christians from Damascus and bring them back to Jerusalem where they would face trial. And yet on his way, he has his life-changing encounter. Out of nowhere, a light from heaven appears. It drives Saul to the ground. And Saul sees this bright light and hears a voice cry out to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now don't miss this. Don't skip over this. Saul is laser focused on his intent to persecute and imprison Christians. And on the way, he is thinking that he's faithfully fulfilling his duty as a Pharisee. And he's dead wrong. And had not Jesus come and appeared to Saul, Saul would have continued on that mission. And so, from the ground, Saul cries out, Who are you, Lord? And I think Saul understood that this was a, a divine encounter. If you read the Old Testament, and when God appeared to his prophets, to Moses, to Ezekiel, it is very similar. There's a bright light and a loud voice. So Saul knew he was in a divine encounter, but I don't think at this point he knew who it was. So he cries out, Who are you, Lord? And Jesus doesn't leave Saul in suspense. He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is here in this moment that Saul's life is forever changed. This is the, the watershed of watershed moments in Saul's life and perhaps in the life of the church. Saul would later go on to write 13 letters in our New Testament. In a moment, he underwent his own Copernican revolution. He went from his life being centered on himself and, and his own understanding and what he thought was right to his life now being shifted and centered on Jesus and following Jesus. And Saul encounters the, the risen Christ at Damascus. He sees Jesus as the one who's been exalted to the right hand of God. He doesn't encounter Jesus in his humiliation. He's not encountering Jesus here as he stood on the cross and, and paid the penalty for sins. No, he's, he's encountering the exalted Christ. Instantly, Paul knew he was on the wrong side of history. 
He knew, in fact, that Jesus was who he said he was. That Jesus was, in fact, exactly who these disciples said he was. And he knew that Jesus sat in the place of victory. And that these followers that he was going to imprison were not the crazy radicals, but they were the faithful children. And he was the crazy radical. Saul saw the glory of Christ, and it forever changed his life. Let me suggest just three themes that you can trace throughout Paul's 13 letters. And I think you can trace them back to this moment here on the Damascus Road. First, because of his encounter on the Damascus Road, Saul understood the depth and the nature of sin in a way he hadn't previously understood. He's able to write in 1 Timothy 1.15 that this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Or he would write in Romans chapter 3, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. What Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. To sum it up, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Jew and Gentile. On the road to Damascus, Paul thought he was going as a faithful Pharisee, fulfilling his good duty. And yet he was confronted to the, with the fact that he was a sinner desperately in need of God's grace. Second, Paul was confronted with the fact that salvation is of grace, not keeping the law. Paul explains this from his own perspective in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence, I have more. And then he goes on to list his spiritual pedigree, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul saying, if salvation could be earned, I would have earned it. But then he says in verses 7 through 9, But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. On the Damascus Road, Saul realized that his salvation could not be earned. But rather, it was through the perfect obedience of Christ, received through faith by grace. And then thirdly, Saul understood the union that Christ has with all believers in his church. In Ephesians 5, Paul is teaching there on marriage and how it is a picture of the gospel. He says in marriage, the the two flesh, they, they become one. And then he says that that mystery is profound and yet it refers to the church. That Christ is united with his church. So Paul understood to persecute Christ's church is to persecute Christ. To belittle Christ's church is to belittle Christ. Because Christ shed his blood for the church, for his people. So this is why you can say with reasonable confidence, one of the ways to know if you're growing in Christ would be a commitment to church. Because the church is, is not optional. Jesus in this passage identifies with his church. So if we are identifying with Christ, we then identify with his church. So these three themes and and many more could be traced back to Saul's Damascus Road encounter. And so then Jesus instructs Saul, he says, to get up and, and go into Damascus. And there in Damascus, he would receive further instruction. So the folks that were traveling with Saul were amazed. They were speechless. They, they could hear, but they couldn't see what Saul saw. And so they take him into Damascus. And verses 10 through 19, they confirm what we have just said, that Saul's life was indeed transformed by seeing the light of the gospel, by seeing the light of Christ. His life was forever changed in that moment. So the Lord appears to a man named Ananias. Later in Acts, Paul would describe Ananias as a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by the Jews. Ananias was a leader in the community in Damascus, and God appears to him in a vision. The Lord tells Ananias, go and meet Saul. And knowing that Ananias would have fear and trembling as he went, the Lord says, and I've given him a vision too. And he's expecting you. So Ananias, I've given you a vision, and Ananias, I've given Saul a vision. So go. And understandably, Ananias protests. He says, Lord, I've heard about this man. I know what he did in Jerusalem. And Lord, I I know that he approved of the murder of your precious child, Stephen. And I know that he's here for a specific reason, and it's not 
to give pleasantries. Are you, are you sure it's this man, Lord? Are you sure that's really what you're asking me to do? And God says, go. He says, go, because Saul is a chosen instrument of the Lord. And that Saul will carry the Lord's name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. This is the sovereign, free, electing grace of God. And he would choose Saul to be a Christian. And furthermore, that he would choose Saul for a tremendous purpose to carry his name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And no doubt this ministry would involve suffering. So the Lord reaffirms to Ananias, go. And so Ananias goes and he finds Saul. And when he finds Saul, he, he lays his hands on him. And he says, brother, Saul. I mean, can you picture that? Can you picture that moment? Saul, blind, here to persecute Christians. And Ananias says, brother Saul. A few weeks back, Randy referenced five missionaries who died in Ecuador. They died on January 8, 1956. Many of you will be familiar with them. Uh, the most, uh, arguably the most famous of those five is a man named Jim Elliott. His wife, uh, Elizabeth Elliott, she died a few years back, but she wrote a number of books and, and kind of uh, took what happened in Ecuador and, and helped bring it back to the States. But these five men went to Ecuador for one purpose, to preach the gospel to those who had never heard it. And they found this tribe that they had no, never had contact with white Westerners. And even the, the local Indian tribes in Ecuador didn't have contact with them. They had a violent reputation. And these five men said, that's who needs the gospel. And so they planned and prepared a mission. And so they flew down and were planning to bring some gifts and make peace, make a peaceful contact with this tribe. And all five of those men were speared to death in effort to get the gospel to people who had never heard it before. But God's grace is good because the gospel did come to that tribe. A few years later, uh, the women of the men, many of them stayed and continued to labor. And a few years later, Elizabeth Elliot, uh, Jim Elliot's wife, was able to go and, and see that the gospel had taken root in this community. And there was a man named Minke. Minke was one of the leaders now, one of the Christian leaders in the tribe. Minke was also the man who 
killed Nate Saint and Ed McCauley, two of the five men that risked their life to bring the gospel here. Minke was now a believer in that very same gospel. In April of 2020, Minke entered into glory. I wonder how sweet that reunion was for Minke and those five men. Well, they welcomed Minke into glory and said, Brother Minke, this is the power of the gospel. The reconciling, redeeming power of the gospel. That's what we see here in our passage. So Ananias lays his hands on Saul and confirmed the the vision that Saul had received. Ananias confirms that he too had that same vision and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And then he arose and was baptized. Now for many of us here this morning, our conversion to Christ is probably less dramatic than what we just read about. There's no denying that. What we read here is dramatic. It's extraordinary. And we thank God for it. But for some of you, your conversion to Christ occurred over a much longer period of time. And you may not be able to you know, pinpoint your, quote, Damascus Road experience. You just know at some point you weren't a Christian and now you are a Christian. And the point is not that our story looks exactly like Saul's story. If your story is similar to Saul, we thank God and and rejoice with you. But the point is, if you've been converted, if you've received the sweetness of the gospel... And at one point you were not a Christian and and now you are. And your life looks different because of it. That's the point. Is that when you see the light of the gospel, your life is forever changed. It's impossible to, to see the glory of Christ and to remain the same. And so conversion, salvation, that... That marks the beginning of our Christian life. And in the deepest sense, that's when life truly starts. It's not the end, that's the beginning. And the rest of your life is a progressive series of ups and downs as you try to grow and and become more like Christ. And so that brings us to the second point this morning. The second point is that your Christian life will have ups and downs. The first, seeing the light of Christ forever changes you. The second, your Christian life will have ups and downs. Look first at the ups. Look at verses 20 through 22. Immediately, Saul goes into the synagogues and begins proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. He wastes no time living out the new life that he has in Christ. He's going to to those who are spiritually blind and he's now proclaiming to them Jesus is the Son of God. 
And the people who are hearing that are scratching their head, thinking this is a plot twist. I thought this guy was here to put us in jail, and now he's preaching better than anyone. What is going on? And Saul seems unfaced. He says he increased in strength. He's just pressing on. He's just so fired up that God has saved him, and he's preaching. Jesus is the Christ. He's not only just preaching. He's he's also proving that Jesus is the Christ. He's reasoning from the Scriptures with them. And yet, like we've already observed in Acts, that kind of preaching will get you into trouble. That kind of preaching says that Jesus is Lord and calls people to repentance. That kind of preaching gets folks in trouble. It got Saul in trouble. And now we go to the downs. Paul's on the mountaintop in in his preaching, and then in verses 23 through 26... We read that when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. So in order to get a fuller picture of just kind of the, the downs here that I'm describing. Uh, it'll be helpful to remember some of Paul's own testimony about his conversion and, and what happened. You can find that in Galatians chapter 1. Uh, I'll read just a few verses from Galatians chapter 1. But when he, God, who had set me, Saul or Paul, apart before I was born and who called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days. So you'll see there's a little bit of a difference in how Paul recalls what happened and, and what Luke says happened. And again, need not give us pause for worry. There's a totally easy way to understand these two accounts. In verse 23 of Acts 9, when Luke writes, When many days had passed, I think those many days actually were like three years. I think again in um, at the end of verse 19, Paul or Saul was in Damascus and immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue. So I think Saul had a brief ministry in Damascus. And then I think he went down to Arabia, was there for three years, and then came back up to Damascus. And again, presumably Paul's doing the same thing in Damascus and Arabia and back up in Damascus. He's preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. And like we have expected, like we've come to expect, like we've seen, that kind of ministry is causing problems for Saul. 
He's now a wanted man. And so he becomes aware of the plot against his life and he escapes Damascus and flees into Jerusalem where he attempts to join the Christians there. And I want to focus for a few minutes on verse 26. He attempted to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. I mean, three years have gone by since Saul of chapter 8 and Saul of chapter 9. The reports would have been in, no doubt. News of Saul's conversion would have reached Jerusalem a long time ago. But these disciples, they, they couldn't believe it. I thought it was just part of some sort of big Ponzi scheme where Saul was trying to pull the wool over their eyes. He just kept this act up for three years. They couldn't actually believe that God's grace would go to a man like Saul. The three years felt like three days for these disciples. I mean, they remembered the havoc that Saul caused. I mean, they remember weeping and mourning after Stephen's death. I remember the, the horror of having to throw their things in a bag and flee because persecution was so bad and Saul was the guy that was leading the charge. Perhaps they had forgiven Saul, but they had not forgotten. They could not believe that God's grace would come to a man like Saul. It's important for us to recognize that these are Christians in this passage. These are those who have received the grace of God. And yet... Those Christians, they're, they're struggling here in this passage. They're, they're struggling with God's free grace. If you've got some time this week, I strongly encourage you to read uh, Matthew chapter 20, specifically verses 1 through 16. Jesus tells a parable that gets to this exact point. In short, the parable is of that of a vineyard worker going out and hiring workers in the city at uh, different times throughout the day. He hires some in early morning, mid-morning, lunch, mid-afternoon, and then some at the end of the day. And they all get the same thing. They all get the amount that they agreed to work for. So those who worked in the morning got one day's wage. Those who worked in the evening got one day's wage. As you might predict, the people in the parable, they begin to grumble, say things like, well, that's not fair. I've been here all day sweating. This guy shows up and, and he hasn't even broken a sweat and he gets the same amount of money. Are you kidding me? And the point of the parable is when the vineyard owner replies to them, he says, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a day's wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I chose to give to this last worker as I am giving to you. 
Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Are you, or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. This is part of the ups and downs in our Christian life. Is that we lose sight of grace and begin to think of it in terms of expectation. And we forget that we too did not deserve the grace that God gave us. That's the point of grace. You didn't deserve it. God gave it. And so the temptation that we all face is when we find ourselves in the valley of life is to see those who are on the mountaintops to begin to think things like, well, that's not fair. Why am I here and why are they there? We, in those moments, we're tempted to lose sight of the gospel and of amazing grace that God saves sinners. And that's good news for you. And that's good news for me. And thankfully, God gave Barnabas such eyes to see. Barnabas, as we have come to expect, steps up. He vouches for Paul, for Saul. Presents him to the disciples, to the apostles. We read that Saul continues preaching boldly in Jerusalem. And we, at the end of our passage, will leave Saul behind for a few chapters. We won't uh, come back to Saul until Acts chapter 13. So there's kind of a brief ending here of Saul's life. And isn't it fitting that while in Jerusalem, he goes to the Hellenists? That's the same people you'll remember that Stephen went to and was preaching. The Hellenists. Stephen goes to the Hellenists and ends up losing his life for it. And the man who approved of that execution has been transformed by the power of the gospel and now he's preaching to the very same people. Oh, this is amazing grace. So whether you find yourself on the mountaintops or in the valley, I pray you would see the glory of Christ that changed you in the past and would continue to change you to the present until either the Lord returns or we go home. And the Lord, I think, is kind and He's sensitive to the disciples in verse 26 that are struggling. Because in verse 31, we read that there's peace throughout all the churches. And they're being built up. They're continuing to grow. They're walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The very thing that brought us to Christ, God's grace will be the thing that sustains us through the good times and the really hard times. And may we sing with John Newton, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come 
Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Yes, when this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. So we come now to remember this amazing grace in Christ. Every week here we celebrate communion. It's the way that God gave us to remember, not just with our ears, but with our eyes, with our hands, with our mouth. We remember the price of our redemption. And so if you're here and you are a Christian, if you're trusting in Christ, then the table is open for you. If you're here and you are not a Christian, you're not yet trusting in Christ, then please come find me. I would love to talk to you about what that means. Talk to your parents. Talk to someone about what it looks like to follow Jesus. So I'll pray and As usual, you can walk through the doors when you feel so led and partake of the elements. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace. Father, we confess like Saul, Lord, we are unworthy of your love and your affection. Father, may you give us eyes to see the glory of Christ. And Father, may you continue to make us more and more like your Son. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.